Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but why do we call it Good Friday? What's good about Good Friday? When we think about death and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and the unjust way of doing it, the gory, horrific details of it, what's good about it? Let me begin with maybe a parable or a story. There's an old hermit who lived in the mountains, and he died, and his, his relatives who hadn't seen him for years and had moved to the cities, they came to really collect their inheritance. As they come up to his cabin, an old shack, the little outhouse behind it, one corner is a rock fireplace, an old kettle sitting on it. Another corner, there's a, a table cracked and a chair that's, you can't hardly dare to sit on it. In the other corner, there's, there's some mining equipment. Looks like it's been well used and old. In the other corner, there's a little cot. Completely shot. It's worn out. And as they picked up a few of these things, thinking, well, maybe they're old relics. Maybe the mining equipment will have some value. They put them in their vehicle and they're just ready to leave. And his friend, who also lived in the mountains, came up to the vehicle riding on his mule. And as he came up to the vehicle, he, he asked them, Did you get everything that you wanted? He said, yep, there's not much left. And he says, do you mind if I use this cabin from time to time? And do you mind if I take the, anything that you left over? No, no problem. And, the, and they greeted him and they leave. He goes into the cabin. There he moves the table. He opens up the floorboards. There's millions of dollars of gold underneath these floorboards. And as the dust is still hanging in the air from the car driving away, he says to himself, oh, that they would have just gotten to know him better. You know, I wonder if that's us sometimes when it comes to Jesus. Oh, that we would just have get to know him better. And on Good Friday, we look at a cross with a man mocked and ridiculed and despised, crowned with thorns on his head, nailed to the cross, helpless, considered smitten of God and afflicted, I think, what, what use is this? It's all broken down. We see death. He's buried in the grave. 
What is this? But if we mine underneath those floorboards to pull out the gold, that's when we will know who Christ is and what he's done. I'd like to take you there in Isaiah chapter 53. As we turn to Isaiah 53, welcome to turn your Bibles there if you'd like to, verses 7 through 9, which we'll read. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who can declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Amen. May God bless his word and the exposition of it. I'd like to look at this with the theme, the victorious death of the servant, or the servant of the Lord and his victorious death, with three thoughts. We'll see how he's conquered oppression, first of all. Secondly, he's conquered death. And thirdly, in conquering the grave, the victorious death of the servant of the Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The very one who has created the heavens and the earth, including man, came to suffer by the very hands of men. The one who has all power in heaven and on earth was oppressed and afflicted by his very creatures that he has created. What profound words. When we read, he opened not his mouth. When he was oppressed and afflicted, if we would have been oppressed and afflicted, we would, we would, the first words we would say, this is not fair. It's not fair. What? And we ask the question, why does it say here, he opened not his mouth? It, it wasn't fair. And yet, he said this, he didn't say this because he was numbered with the sinners. John Calvin wrote, the reason for Christ's silence here in judgment, at the judgment seat of Pilate, for the most part anyway, was because he had to be answerable for our guilt. He had to submit himself to complete silence that it might loudly glory in righteousness that's obtained through faith. And so, Christ had to be obedient even to death and he had to do so in a silent way as he suffered for our sins. He could not open up his mouth because our sins were laid upon him as we saw last week. He became our substitute and in submission and meekness he comes under the wrath of God for our sins. 
That ought to drive us to see that terrible nature of our sins. And the necessity that Christ should suffer for our sins and to be one who opened not his mouth in judgment and justice against those who were oppressing him. And yet we do remember that he did open up his mouth. And he answered Pilate with truth. When Pilate asked him if he was the king of the Jews, you say, I am. He acknowledged to those around him that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. They counted it as blasphemy. But he answered them with respect and honor and dignity as he answers them. And yet he becomes silent as he suffers the oppression of one who did not deserve it. And he opened not his mouth. I believe Jesus opened not his mouth for this reason. That Jesus died for us in order to be raised, to ascend to heaven, to open his mouth for us. So as he ascends to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for us. And in our oppression, in our struggles, in our challenges, Christ is opening his mouth for us. He's head over all things exalted. And what encouragement that should give us today in all the difficulties and challenges of life to know that in our oppression, Christ will never leave his church. He became silent to come under the just judgment of God for our sins in order to be raised and ascended to heaven to deal with oppression and to open his mouth wide for us, his people. He opens his mouth to make intercession for us, to rule for us, to defend us, to defend the oppressed, to to ensure that the bruised reeds are not crushed and the smoking flax are not burned, blown out, but that He takes us as He has conquered oppression for us. Verse 8, I want to look at another phrase attached to this. In verse 8, we find that He was taken from prison and from judgment. And now, you might say, well, those, those might be very simple words, and, and, and the simplicity of them might be even almost deceptive, that he was taken you know, from, from judgment and taken out to the cross, and that might be what you, what you might think. But it, it goes deeper than that. As it were, he's taken out of judgment and out of prison. In other words, he's taken out of this oppression and to, de- to declare that he is victorious over Oppression. Now, obviously, this prison and judgment were oppression in, in a broad sense. He, he, he was brought to the prison house of Caiaphas. He was brought from Gethsemane to the grave. He was a prisoner. And not only was he a prisoner of man and coming under the judgment of man, but he became a prisoner of God on the cross in the darkness forsaken of God. And even though he was unjustly condemned by men, and yet justly condemned by God because our sins rested upon him, 
As it were, he fell into the hands of an angry God, as we found, would find in Jonathan Edwards' sermon. But here it's also true that God himself has fallen into the hands of angry sinners. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, falls into the hands, is given over into the hands of angry sinners. I can't imagine the patience of God. I can't comprehend it. Man, who are flying in his face, cursing him, beating him, mocking him, accusing him of blasphemy. Coming up with their own justice system. They cast Christ into prison and cry, crucify him, crucify him. And yet, he's taken out from judgment because we find on the cross of Calvary, after the darkness is lifted, that he can cry out, it is finished, redemption is accomplished. He's taken out from prison and out from judgment because he's given a full and a finished work a complete work of salvation in order to redeem us from from the power of Satan, from the power of sin, from the power of our old nature, from the power of persecutors, redeemed from oppression. He's conquered it through His finished work. The suffering is finished. Did you say, Pastor, we still suffer. We still go through oppression. Did not Christ truly Conquer it. We can also recognize that oppression for us can be to the glory of God and as we bear his cross. And it can be it can be really not punishment, but chastisement from our loving Heavenly Father. And we can be exercised in faith by it and grow in, in a desire to serve him more. And ultimately we need to recognize that any affliction or oppression that we have in life pales in comparison to the oppression that Christ endured silently on the cross of Calvary. And there, He pays the price for our sin, for our oppression, drinking every drop of the wrath of God so that we would not eternally suffer his wrath and oppression in hell forever. He said it's finished. Oppression, suffering, swallowed up in victory. Including death, as we see in our second point. He's come to conquer death. One of the most solemn realities in life is when you're at a deathbed and someone dies. To see that last breath. I was talking to my grandfather about one of these solo, the solemn reality a week, a week or so ago when I called him when his sister passed away, my great aunt. And, and for him, he recognizes that 
Out of six other siblings, there's only one left. A generation is almost gone. And that becomes another solemn reality. And in verse 8, our text goes on to say, who will declare his generation? Well, what do these simple words mean? Who shall declare his generation? Well, to declare something is, is to announce something and to make a statement of truth about it. So who's going to make this statement of truth about Christ's generation? Who's going to carry on the, the legacy even? My aunt who passed away had a huge family. I believe there's like 13 or 14 children in it. There's a long legacy that's going to be passed on. But Jesus had no offspring. Who will declare his generation? Who will declare it? Now we recognize that many times we think about a generation as a lifespan. And, and it could be referring to that as well, the, 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 the lifespan of, of, of someone. It's gone. As we find in Isaiah 38 with Hezekiah, it's, lifespan is circular. It's gone. And who will declare the truths that are conveyed out of his lifespan? You could, you could look at it that way. But you can also look at it this way. How can, how can his posterity, how can his descendants, how, how can they declare these truths since, since there's no offspring? And he is cut off and there's no possibility of offspring again. He's dead. And that's what Satan wanted everyone to believe. That's what the world wanted. They would do away with Jesus. We'll bury him in the tomb. We'll put him to death and bury him. And he's gone. It's over. The light will shine no more. Well, indeed, he shall be cut off from the land of the living. But his name and his race shall never become extinct. His generation, his posterity will be so numerous that no one will ever be able to even declare how numerous it is and to declare the truths of it and the depths of those truths. Who shall declare his generation? Is also, in a sense, a rhetorical question. Like, how great it will be when you look at verse 10, which we hope to look at on Sunday morning. He shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's victorious over death. Death could not hold him. Yes, he died on the cross. His soul was torn from his body. In a horrific way, he was crucified. The cursed death. And yet, at the end of his crucifixion, he has the energy to pull himself up and to proclaim with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a note of victory. And he's a, he's a victor for his people. A victor over sin, over death. Death, which is often spoken of as the final enemy, does not have the final victory. 
Death is the consequence of sin. But you see, Christ was oppressed. He was even put to death for His people. And He conquered death for His people. He put death to death. It's over. Oh, it's not so much who will declare. Who will consider the fact that He was cut off? Who will consider His generation? What do you consider about Jesus? Are you starting to mine that gold that's underneath the table? Do you see, as you put your first hand into that gold and you pull it out and you see the riches of the fact that Jesus died for me? For a sinner like me? He died to conquer oppression, to conquer death, all consequences of what I deserve, but also to thirdly conquer the grave. Another solemn reality is when we go out to the cemetery and we go to a grave of someone who's separated from us. It's their bodies in the grave, but they're Soul is with the, has come before the Lord in eternity. A solemn reality. A solemn reality that Jesus had to go through as well. And they made his grave with the wicked. He was counted as a criminal. And he made his grave with the wicked. The one who had created the heavens and the earth had to be buried in a grave made by those whom he created. But notice, our text doesn't stop there. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. You see, when Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. It was finished. Oppression, death, sin, he's victorious over it. And as he goes to the grave, he goes to the grave in that last act of what we call of humiliation. It's a, it's a bridge between his finished work and his exaltation of being raised from the dead. And there, even though men have treated the servant of the Lord with dishonor and disgrace, rejecting him, despising him, yet God, God himself had prepared a burial for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in Roman crucifixion, what would often happen would be that they would hang on the cross a long time and even after they were dead to ensure that they were dead. And if they, if they were just cast down, they would be eaten by animals. Or sometimes they would even be cast into a mass type of a grave, a criminal, burial. But God had not planned such a burial for the Lord Jesus Christ. For he had already prepared women to come and anoint the Lord Jesus Christ for his burial. 
he prepares a man named Joseph of Arimathea to provide a tomb, a new cut tomb for the Lord Jesus Christ to give him a proper burial. He prepares a man named Nicodemus to go before Pilate and beg the body of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could give him that proper burial. What is the fact that Christ went into the grave mean to you? What comfort does that mean to you? Well, for one thing, we recognize that our catechism gives actually a beautiful answer. Heidelberg Catechism asks this very simple question, why was he buried? And it says, he was buried to testify that he really died. He really died. That's important for our salvation, that he really died. I don't think the enemies of Christ would have even buried him alive. They would have ensured that he was dead. But I can guarantee the friends of Christ would have never buried him alive. He really died. And it shows also that the prophecies of the Word of God are absolutely sure that even as he really died, he will also really rise again on the third day. Even as he is spoken of in the Psalms, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol or the grave. Or here in Isaiah 53, verse 9, he made his grave at the wicked, but the rich in his death Revealing the glory that Christ would receive this proper and honorable burial. Or even the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 12. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the, in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man also be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He talks about destroying this temple in three days and I will raise it again. And he's speaking there of the temple of his body. You see, Christ's victory is shining forth through his burial. God has received it. He's given him an honorable burial, and he'll be raised on the third day. There's certainty there. And that certainty is our comfort. For there we know that Christ died for my sins, and my sins are buried with him in the grave, to be laid there forever. And the, and, and the stone will never be rolled away from the grave of our sins when we believe in Jesus Christ. And he has conquered that grave. And he's even sanctified the grave. Yes, it's a solemn thing to go to the cemetery, to stand before a grave where we realize death is that final enemy and yet it is not victorious. We are dust and we will return to dust. But the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ through his victorious death gives us the confidence to say with Paul, Oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory. The victory is in Christ. It's in Him. 
It's in the one who's come to conquer oppression, to conquer death, and to conquer the grave. I will warn you right now that the opposite consequences are there for every single person who takes off in that car and has not lifted up those floor bed, floorboards to dig out that gold and to believe it and to know it. Because then you will be oppressed for eternity. Eternally separated from God in eternal death to be in hell forever. Who is Jesus to you? Do you look at him as a despised hermit? One who's not worth building a relationship with? One who's not worthy of getting to know? One who's not worth sharing his riches with? What do you think of Jesus? Is everything he offers just a bunch of junk? Old relics. The old wooden cross. And all the sentimental things that go along with it, but don't really mean anything to you. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you as you speed off to your homes and to your businesses and to your pleasures in this day? Who is Jesus to you? Do you see him? Do you know him? Are you his friends who know the riches that he has to offer through his work as he's conquered oppression, conquered the grave, and death itself? you see his victory and why we call it Good Friday. Amen. Oh Lord, so often we get so distracted by everything in the here and now. We get distracted even with our own sentimental value placed on traditions and so on. But we never truly dig under those, those floorboards to pull up the riches and the treasures that there are in your finished work. Lord, I pray that you would show us, Jesus, that we would know today, each one of us, that he has died for sinners among whom I am chief and confess that, yes, he has died for me. Hear our prayer and go with us to our homes and bless us and forgive us of all our sins. For Jesus' sake, amen.